life continues to be life. But the bigger story is that God continues to be God. He simply stands at the door and knocks again and again, and he's relentless in his pursuit of his children because he loves every one of us. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with my friend Mark Miner, born in Germany, an army brat. Correct. Nice. And then moved to Arizona. Lives now in northern Utah. He's got his BA in business from Utah State University. He's a successful realtor here in northern Utah and has been a facilitator in the ARP, which is the Addiction Recovery Program of the LDS Church for over 22 years. Mark and his wife, Tammy, just celebrated 25 years of marriage. Congratulations. Thank you. Big milestone there. And they have a nearly grown son who is a bit taller every time I see him. (laughs) So, full disclosure, Mark is family. We may not be brothers by blood, but uh, we're just family. Yes, I've always believed that. Well, thank you for coming in and sharing your story, which goes some interesting places that you probably didn't plan on it going when you were younger, and yet has ended up being such a blessing to so many people besides just yourself. So take me back just a little bit. As far as faith and the house you grew up in, what are your earliest memories? Do you remember church or or spiritual teachings? Yes, uh, my parents came from LDS families, but they were never active themselves. But they made sure because of grandma and grandpa on both sides that my sister and I, she was 18 months younger, always had the opportunity to go to church. And sometimes my parents would walk us or drop us off, and we would have prayers over our meals We would celebrate Christmas, but beyond that, um, religion really wasn't a part of our household. But nonetheless, I grew up in a very happy home, um, or so it seemed, till I was around six, maybe going on seven, and I realized that there was something wrong. My mom was a very happy person. Uh, Gay was her nickname among her friends. And she was devastated one day. I've never seen my mom like that. Um, She was crying. She couldn't talk. I stuck with her for a long time. And I kept asking her, Mom, what's wrong? And she wouldn't tell me. She would just shake her head. And finally, my dad stuck his head around the corner. We were in the kitchen. And I saw this awful look on his face that I'd never seen before. And at that moment, my mom blurted out, your dad doesn't love me anymore. He loves another woman. And are little kids ever given a manual on how to fix their parents? But do little kids sometimes feel responsible to try to please their parents and fix their parents? And in my young mind, I thought, well, if I can just be good enough, dad will love mom again. So I said, okay, I'm going to get really good in school. And over the next few years, I never missed a day of school. Even when I was sick, I would just suck it up and say, I've got to be there. I would try to do everything my parents wanted us to do around the house and uh, in the yard. And I tried to be this perfect kid. And I made some all-star teams in baseball and played football and... and, uh, I thought I was on the right track. Why is it that kids do that, that they think it's on them? Is it because their behavior is the only thing in their control and everything else is out? That's a wonderful question. And I think in my case, that was the only thing that I knew to do. (laughs) And I thought, if I can just find the key to make dad happy, he will love mom and we'll be a happy family again. And I, I knew that my parents liked it when we went to church, so my sister Leslie and I never missed church. I probably prayed 15 times a day as a little kid. Um, I grew up with this innate sense that God was there and I could always talk to him. 
Did you feel that when you when you prayed? Did you feel some connection? I did. And I didn't I didn't I wasn't able to fully articulate uh, how I felt. All I knew is I felt God was listening mm. and that God was loving. And this seemed to work for a number of years. I got straight A's in school. Uh, made some all-star teams. My dad went to Vietnam for a year. That was one of the actually more spiritual experiences in our family. Um, Before my dad left, he got us all together and said, guys, we don't talk a lot about prayer, but I'm going to pray every day for you, and you pray every day for me, and whenever I get back, it'll probably be a year or longer, um, we'll be together again as a family. And he was gone for 13, 14 months, and he came back. We were living in the D.C. area, and I remember the plane landed. My dad came down the ramp. My mom ran out to him and hugged him and kissed him. And I remember thanking God that my family was back together. I said, it's all been worth it. And for a few months, things were good. Uh, My parents even came to church a couple of times, which they had never done before. And then I heard another argument, and I heard accusations about another woman, and I realized my dad had started drinking again, and I thought that I had failed. Mm. My best wasn't good enough. And of course, I kept on trying for a while, but things didn't seem to get better between my parents. And my dad retired from the military, and we moved. And uh, gradually, the fire in me went out. I just started to feel less and less like I could be this perfect version that I thought God or my parents expected me to be. For the next couple of years, my whole world went gray. Hmm. I didn't know what depression was. But looking back, it's pretty clear that I was depressed. Because when you feel like you're you're a failure, you're not left with many options. You know, you can try again and try again, but I've been trying again for seven, eight years. We moved down to Sierra Vista, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And this was right at the end of my sophomore year of high school. And uh, I thought I'd died and gone to hell. Because, you know, of course it was 100 degrees and I left all my friends behind and I was in this strange place in a small town and I would go up to the military base, play basketball with the soldiers. And I could hang with the the young enlisted men soldiers and it was, you know, July and playing ball all the time. And... It was my escape from the reality was that I was in a a family that didn't seem to love each other anymore. I went to church a couple of times down there, but I thought, you know, what's the use? Um, I thought God was greatly disappointed in me because I hadn't fulfilled the mission that I thought was mine. Mm. And, of course, there was, looking back... um, No loving God would ever put a mission like that on a young kid. But I wasn't dealing with absolute reality. I was dealing with the noise in my head and the lack of connection in my heart. And I was gradually um, starting to disbelieve in teachers and preachers and parents and society as a whole. And one day at the gym, I wandered out into the enlisted men's barracks next door, and they had a beer machine there. You could buy a beer for a quarter. And I decided, you know what? I've never wanted to be like my dad when he drinks, and he drank to excess. But the curiosity got the best of me, and I bought these two beers, and I put them in my gym bag. And I was too afraid to even put them in a locker, so I hid them out behind the the gym. And a couple hours later, I drank two 100-degree warm beers, which tasted as nasty as sweat socks smell. (laughs) But it did something, that gaping hole in my soul of nothingness and emptiness and, and lack of connection felt filled to a degree with something a little bit warm and fuzzy. And I thought, oh, I've discovered something. And I went home, 
and the fact that my parents weren't even talking to each other didn't even seem to register. And a day or two later, I did the same thing. And long story short, by the time school started, I was going up every day and buying six or eight beers and drinking them. And then school started the 1st of September, and I was, I would hang out on the edge of the parking lot because by then I'd picked up smoking cigarettes, and, and, and then I found that we were really close to the Mexican border, and uh, marijuana was easily accessible, and I tried that for the first time. And lo and behold, none of the horror stories I'd been told uh, seemed to be true. The only thing that happened when I first got high on weed was um, girls looked cuter, music sounded better, and uh, brownies and Doritos tasted like the bomb. (laughs) And that kind of broke down all the barriers. First beer and then some weed. I said, okay, this is how I'm going to get through life. I didn't realize that I was setting myself up for addiction. I mean, nobody decides they're going to become an addict. Right, right. But 18 months from the day that I took that first drink, I got arrested. I was in February of my senior year, and I got arrested for two burglaries to pay for my addiction to a couple of the hardest drugs on the planet. My use had devolved into experimenting with other things and then not just experimenting daily use and then absolute addiction. And I got put into the youth prison system at the age of 17 in my senior year. And, of course, that catches your attention. But they don't throw kids away for a long time. Mm -hmm. They give you a chance. And after six weeks, they said, okay, we're going to send you to a halfway house in Tucson. And there's really only two rules. First, you've got to either work or go to school or both. And the second, you can't drink or use. Mm. And oh, I started looking for a job the first day. And that night I hadn't found a job, but I did find some liquor and I got drunk and I got busted and they put me right back in the youth prison. Mm. This happened three times. Um, They would give me another chance after a few weeks of being locked up. Now, someone would say, well, you could obviously see what was happening. Why would you make that choice when it was so obvious? But it's not that simple. Yes, because you think you can hide it, or you think you can't live without something to change the way you feel Mm. because your reality is so dark and so negative. And, you know, I know I thought about suicide, and then I would say, no, that can't be the answer. I better just go find a, a bottle or a pill or a line or whatever it was to fill the, fill the hole, to fill the void. And also, 17-year-olds pretty much think they're six, you know, 10 foot tall and bulletproof. <laughs> and there was some of that going on, that pride that, you know what, they're not going to catch me this time. And the third time that I got out, they said, look, you're almost 18. If you blow it this time, there's a good chance they'll remand you to adult court. And I said, well, they're not going to catch me. And I used something else. And sure enough, they caught me. And I found myself in the county jail. And at the age of 17, going on 18, I found myself in the state prison in Arizona, in Florence. Florence is called The Walls. And it's a pretty foreboding place. Um, I remember being transported in the the van with some other inmates. You know, you're all shackled up and everything, and it feels good to get out of the van until you realize you've just gone through these two gates, these two iron gates that are huge, with guards walking around the top with this concertina wire, and the guards are carrying rifles. And when that second gate shut, there was a visceral feeling in my soul. It sounded like the gates of Mordor shutting in Lord of the Rings. And it was like, oh, my goodness, what did I do? And I looked around and I saw some of the biggest men that I've ever seen, you know, lifers that have been lifting weights all their lives. And I said, you know what, I'll never survive this unless unless I'm smarter than I have been. Mm. So it caught my attention. 
And the only thing, I, like I said, that I really knew were exercise and schooling. So I got immediately involved in schooling, and I got my uh, GED, and then I got involved in college uh, programs. And I took every self-help class that they had. But when they would mention God in these classes, which they often did, it didn't matter if it was 12-step or anything else, I would say, well, good, I'm glad that works for you guys. But mm. you know what? I've disappointed God too much. And I had begun to actively try to disbelieve in God. And that whole disappointed God, is that something you felt or something you just sort of decided for yourself? I think much more that I decided for myself. Mm-hmm. Because looking back, I don't think I ever received a negative message from God. I think my interpretation of all my actions was something to the effect of, look, I've really, really tried, and then I've tried again, and then I've tried again, and it hasn't changed anything. Um, And now, look, I've become an alcoholic and an addict. And so I was living in a constant state of flux and denial, but there was no certainty. And the certainty that I had that there was a God when I was in my youth gradually became replaced with a much more worldly and negative philosophy. And so I kept searching in education, self-improvement. And after five years, I thought that I had it figured out. Education, self-discipline, and uh, treating others well around us. I thought, okay, that's going to be my lifestyle. And I got paroled, and I got to go to the uh, to a halfway house in Tucson. I got accepted into the University of Arizona. Um, and two weeks after getting out, I found myself uh, laying on the floor of a classroom, not sure what was going on. My head was all foggy, and all of a sudden I realized that at lunchtime, I had gone to the student union building and got a piece of pizza. And, well, with pizza, I better have a beer. And within a couple of weeks after that, um, I got violated uh, my parole because I had started to use drugs again. And I got put back into prison for the last uh, 11 months of my sentence. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. And this time... Something was, there were two forces in effect. Um, First, I was, I took a course, it was a 500 level course in comparative religion and philosophy. And that professor was the right professor. He looked us each each in the eye and he said, your your assignment for this semester is to write a thesis on who or what is your worldview, your philosophy, or your religion, and then defend it. And you had to write a 10 or 20-page paper and be able to defend it in front of the class for 10 minutes. And he brought in all sorts of teachers of religions and philosophies. We talked about the Greeks, the Romans, the existentialists. Um, We talked about pop psychology and... And we had a Native American come in and put a modified sweat lodge on for us because I was in minimum security. And interestingly enough, in that sweat lodge, I felt God for the first time in probably 10 years. Hmm. And the fellow that was running it said, your creator has a message for you. The whole purpose of this lodge is that you will connect with your creator and see what your creator has to say to you. And he, you know, he got permission. He was able to burn a little sage and they had the lights turned down and he did a little bit of light drumming. Hmm. But it was such a peaceful environment. And in the middle of that, for the very first time in 10 years, I felt something down in here in my chest and my soul. And it felt good. I couldn't articulate what it said, but I could say, yes, that feels good. That feels right. There is something beyond what I can see and taste and feel. 
and it feels pretty much like God. And the other thing that was going on simultaneously with this whole thing was I get a letter in the mail. It was a girl I knew in high school. I'd seen her at the University of Arizona, and uh, we'd gone out a time or two. And she tracked me down and said, uh, said, how come you disappeared? I found out you got in trouble, went back to prison. And so she wrote to me. And I, of course, I had never had a relationship, um, a romantic relationship that had ever been successful. I mean, when you're a 16-year-old alcoholic junkie, you don't give relationships much of a chance. But I started to write to her, and first the letters were a half a page, and then a page, and then two pages. And I think I was on about my fourth eight- or ten-page letter, which is about the most you could stuff in an envelope with one stamp, because that's all you could get in prison was one stamp. Mm. I realized I was really caring for this woman. And, and I had decided in this philosophy and religion class that I was going to write this amalgam of I'm okay, you're okay, and uh, Maslow's hierarchy and needs, because I knew there was truth in both of those. and But I hadn't even really started writing yet. And I was writing my friend, this girl, and I heard and felt a voice say, um... You really care for her, don't you? And I said, well, yes. What's going to happen if you get out and you don't know where you're going? And I took that question very seriously. I didn't real. I thought I was just talking to myself. I care about her. I don't want to ever hurt her. Well, if you don't know where you're going, you're liable to take her with you. And if you're going down the wrong road, you could really hurt her. And I said, I don't want to ever hurt her then what do you believe in? And at that moment, the combination of schooling and caring for this person opened my heart up, and I felt like God was there. And I dropped to my knees, and I prayed for the first time out loud in probably close to 10 years. And I said, God, I believe that you're there, but I don't really know who you are. And I don't know why you would even want to care about me because I'm a convict, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm an addict, and I have failed at every important thing in my life. And I wasn't expecting this, but I got a response. I heard and felt these words, Mark, it's because I love you. And they were the most real and profound words that I've ever experienced. And it was almost like a helmet got ripped off and I could see and hear and feel my creator for the first time. And I stayed on my knees for a couple of hours. I, I don't know how long it was. It could have been an hour, it could have been three hours. And at first there were a lot of tears of shame that I had cut myself off from this source of acceptance and immense love. And then I was just pouring out my soul with all my regrets and all my sorrow and all my hopes and dreams. And before I got up, those tears had been turned into tears of joy because I knew that this was my creator, the God of all the universe. And although I didn't know all of his characteristics, I knew that he was love and that he loved me and he was personal because he had called me by name. When, when you were feeling low before this experience, I mean, would you have called that grief? I think grief is a very accurate um, word for it. And although I don't know that I would have called it grief at the time, right now I definitely would because I mourned that I couldn't fix my parents and that this life trajectory that I had imagined that I'm going to be a good person, that I'm going to make a difference in the world, had been totally derailed. And here I was in prison again and then again. Some people might say, well, God always planned these things to happen to me so that later I could help rescue others. Do you feel that way? Or is it sort of like many things could have happened 
I was on this really discouraging, dark path, and God has chosen to use that. I've always called it discouragement, depression, and everything else. I mean, those were elements of it, but grief is the bigger picture. Mm. That's what it was, Steve. Uh, just a, a loss. Yes, a loss of what I thought was my soul. I mean, I was created to do something, and I thought I'd failed at it. Mm. But now I, I was starting to be schooled by a loving, personal, caring God who I hadn't even imagined in 10 years. I mean, yes, this was the same God I had talked to, I think, when I was four, five, six <laughs> years old. But now I was... And I remember um, asking him, well, what's next? And he goes, you get to decide. <laughs> and I go, well, come on, just tell me. And I had this feeling... Um, I look over there, and in the corner of my room on the window shelf was a little pocket New Testament that the Gideons put. They put them in hotels yeah. and in jails and in prisons. I didn't know that. I knew about the hotels. Yeah. Well, they, and we had the little pocket ones there in the prison. They were in all the cells. And I went over and picked it up. There was a quarter-inch dust on mine. I had never looked at it before. <laughs> And I remember opening it and the back cracked because it had been sitting there in the desert for who knows how many years before me. But I opened it and I put my finger on a scripture. And although it was in King James English, it spoke to me as clearly as anything ever has. And it was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, and I'll just paraphrase it, but God is telling you that there is no temptation but such as is common to man. So what you're going through is what all people go through in some degree or level. Mm. And God's faithful. He knows how to help you get out of it. So trust him and you will be able to bear it. You'll be able to overcome it. And I felt like God was speaking to me. And I said, okay, what next? Well, there's the rest of the book you can read. <laughs> and it started with Psalms and Proverbs, and which was in the Gideon version, and then the whole New Testament. And the only tripping point I had is when I got to uh, Revelations, and that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> but the rest of it, I started to believe in Jesus. Would you call this hope? Yes. Oh, there was very much an awakening of hope. Mm -hmm. um, because... And it was, it was excitement. There was discovery. I was finding a God with whom I could do business. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't this God who was terribly disappointed in me and writing down, um, you know, thousands of pages of the times that I'd screwed up. No, this was a God who was on my side and who was leading me on. Although he was making me do some work, um, I'll tell you one thing uh, that really opened my soul a little further. Um, I had tried to quit smoking multiple times, and, and all I succeeded in was starting smoking again. And I said, God, am I supposed to quit smoking? And he said, well, you get to answer that. And I said, well, dang this thing called agency. How am I supposed to answer that? And... I remember that conversation with God. He said, how do you feel about yourself? And I said, well, honestly, not very good. I've really messed up your life. And he clarified. He goes, no, how do you feel about yourself right now? And I said, well, right now, because you're there and I can talk to you, I feel much better. I feel hope. And you tell me that you love me. And that really feels good. Well, if you love someone, how do you treat them? And I thought about this girl that I was writing to, and I thought about my mom, and I thought about all the people in my life who I've loved. And I said, well, if you love someone, you protect them. You watch over them. You care for them. You pray about them. You cherish them. And, and God then answered, well, if you cherish someone... What are you, what's your decision? And I said, well, God, I guess it's time to quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, well, I'll probably have to pray 400 times a day 
And for the first time, I heard God chuckle. And he said, I'll be here. I'll be here. And I quit smoking. And um, long story short, that began my journey with God. And now it was like three and a half years, three years later, and I met another girl at BYU, and I fell head over heels um, almost immediately. And I was a little slow and moving, and after about six months, I asked her to marry me. I I felt like she was the one. Not, not only did I feel like it, I had had multiple spiritual experiences. And, and she said no. And I thought I'd failed again. And once again, those old familiar thought patterns crept back in. My best isn't good enough. I don't know if it ever will be. And I had misinterpreted the spiritual impressions I had about her. I thought God was telling me, this is the woman you're going to marry. Now go make yourself right and marry her. God isn't like that. He never intrudes on people's agency. I think now what God was telling me is, hey, you picked a good one. If, if she says yes, you have my blessing. Mm. And, but I didn't see it that way. I thought she was the one and only. And basically, I imploded after that. And depression and discouragement got the best of me. And rather than trusting in the God who had got me not only clean and sober, but who had changed my life in multiple ways, I started trusting in the negative voices in my head that told me I was less than and not good enough and never would be. And I'm not going to go through all the details of relapse. Relapse is always ugly, and it never ends well. And finally, I I went to my um, church leaders. I told them that I was addicted to drugs, that I was no longer worthy. I resigned my scholarship uh, at BYU and got released from my calling in my congregation. And they helped me go into a treatment center but it worked until it didn't work because I was still operating way too much on self-will and thinking I had to fix myself before God would really approve me. And long story short, I ended up uh, relapsing again, living on the streets, and I committed a robbery. And so this is the second major time of falling back into addiction, but this time I knew better. And I thought I was a lost and hopeless soul. And after the robbery, I was hiding in the bushes. And it was December, and I had a dark parka on. And no one was going to find me. I was in the middle of a giant pine tree and bushes all around. But God always knows where we are. Mm. And God said, time out. You know this victimless crime that you just rationalized in your head? I'm going to show you what really happened. And it was replayed in my mind's eye in slow motion, high definition detail. And I saw this wasn't some nameless uh, clerk. This was a man in his mid-40s. And I saw the fear in his eye as it was replayed. And I saw his hand start to shake when he realized what was going on and as he reached for the cash register to open it. And then I heard the words, which I didn't even hear while I was in there, because I had told him, I'm not going to hurt you. I just need your money. But I heard his words. He said, please don't hurt me. I've got kids at home. And now in the awfulness of that absolute raw truth, I knew what a phony, a hypocrite, and a blight on humanity I had become. How could I have done this to another human being when I truly believe that all men are my brothers and my sisters? And I became judge, jury, and very nearly executioner. See, I'd never really used guns in my life. I didn't know how to use it. And I figured out how to get the safety off and the bullet into the chamber. And I remember pulling the trigger, and it came down about halfway, and then all of a sudden the whole world went silent. I couldn't hear the cop cars out on the street. I didn't hear or notice the lights anymore. 
I just heard this voice saying, I'm still here. And I said, God, how can you be after all that I've done? And this wasn't this warm, fuzzy, come to Jesus moment like I had come to know quite well. It was awful truth. But God was there with me in the, the deepest hell that I had created for myself. And finally I said, well, what do I do? I have no hope left. And he said, start by being honest. Take my hand. I'll show you the rest of the way. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. And I had that decision to make, and I was paralyzed. I don't know how long I just stood there. But finally, I put the gun down. And I said, okay, God. And I walked out of the bushes, and there were some police down on the corner. And I walked up to them, and I said, I, I put my hands up, and I said, I'm the one that you're looking for. And I pled guilty an hour or two later to a five-to-life armed robbery charge. Um, they told me I didn't even have to plea initially because this is just called your initial hearing. And I said, no, Judge, I, I have to be honest now. It's the only hope I have. What I've come to learn is that all that I believe in is founded on two th things, truth and honesty, which is the core of everything that exists that is good. And then the second principle is love, and love is the highest truth of all for me. And I went through some awful withdrawal, and I ended up in the state prison with a five-to-life sentence. But I only had to spend nine years. And I say only nine years because God used that time to not only reconnect, but to pull me back. And he used multiple people along the way to help in that journey. And it began with um, a prayer. When I dropped to my knees, I was already feeling better. And I said, God, what's it going to take? I know Jesus is the Christ, but I don't know how to stay clean and sober. And God spoke to me again, and he affirmed all my truths. He said, your truths are your truths, so hang on to them. Those are for you. But you know those 12 steps you never thought were for you? You might want to reevaluate. And a smart guy that I was, I started to argue with God. I said, uh, that's for the people in the crack alleys and the soup kitchens and under the viaducts. And he says, and where are you? And I said, <laughs> I said, oh, crap, I'm in a seven-by-nine prison cell with a stinky roommate. <laughs> and I go, you got me, God. I said, so what about the 12 steps? He goes, give them a try. And what I found is that the 12 steps were not a watered-down version of truth for broken-down alcoholics and junkies. They were gospel truth for me that allowed, they were the glue that allowed me to live true to all my other truths. Because the 12 steps, they really come down to a couple of basic principles. Three, the first, there is a God. Now find your God. The second is clean up your side of the street, make amends. And the third is now give back and start to serve others. And it became the glue that allowed me to live true to the gospel and everything else that matters to me. And apparently there was something about um, honesty. I knew it was the core of the gospel, but I didn't know what daily honesty looked like. And in this particular, when I was discouraged or depressed, I thought my job was just to be like John Wayne or Rambo and just bowl my way through it. Mm -hmm rather than say, look, I'm hurting, I need help. And I don't hear you right now, God, so I'm going to talk to you, my brother Steve. Because what I've learned is that in asking for help, it's not a sign of weakness at all. It's a sign of connection and strength. And if I can connect horizontally with the people around me, before long that vertical connection with God will be reestablished. 
and I'll get out of my head. My head will become right size, and my heart will open up again. Mm. And then I will start to be in spirit, and I can feel what God really is trying to say to me and not the noise that my head is yapping at me. (laughs) Mark, some people might say, well, God always planned these things to happen to me so that later I could help rescue others. Do you feel that way, or is it sort of like many things could have happened? I was on this really discouraging, dark path, and God has chosen to use that. He can just use our lives if we put them in his hands. Wonderful questions, and I believe that God always has a plan to bring his children back. He loves his children. He wants us to return home. We get to learn the lessons of mortal mortality, and but God has infinite contingency plans that, oh, if he chooses this, well, then this is how we can course correct. If he cho- chooses this, then I will teach him this particular lesson because he, he knows how to steer his children back into the plan. And the plan is, trust me, own your part, now go serve others. When you think back to that time that we described earlier as, as grief, Can you remember that grief, or has it turned into something better? Well, yes and yes. Um, So, the genesis of my addiction began with a word that we often call codependency, although I never knew that word. I didn't even acknowledge it until I was like my mid-30s. But that combination of trying to fix my parents, which is not my job. That's God's job. But that's what codependency is. You try to do for others what they, only they and or God can do for themselves. And that toxic perfectionism had set me up for a lot of years for addiction. Okay, I can see that clearly now. Um, and the result of it was grief, misery and grief. Um, because I was trying to solve a problem that couldn't be solved in that context. I will never live long enough to perfect myself, um, let alone just save myself. (laughs) What I have learned, though, is to be grateful and to be willing to be used by God in whatever context I can be. And we, it's not that you have to be involved, you get to be involved because service is a win-win. And I'm not all that. I, I'm no one else's savior, but I, I'm never reticent to share my message that recovery is possible no matter what. That none of us have gone so far wrong that we can never come back home. And part of the, part of the voyage has been to get rid of the shame mentality. Mm. And I'll tell you a couple of stories that have happened in recent years where I got the message from God. Our son was in third grade and came home, was right at the beginning of the year, and said, we're going to have this assembly. You get to come, Dad. And I said, okay, great. Let's go do it. And as we were walking up to the cafeteria, we could hear this rock and roll music just thumping. It was Survivor, Eye of the Tiger, the Rocky theme song. (laughs) And, And... They've got these rah-rah guys up there saying, come on, we need dads to be volunteers in the school. And they they kind of, uh, it's unfair. They load the playing field. They give you pizza and Coke. And after a couple of Cokes and a couple of pizzas, I'm ready to sign up. They said, yeah, let me do this. I'll be a volunteer in the school. So I start doing the application for the watchdog dads. And get down to the last line. It said, background check required $20. Felons need not apply. Mm. And I had to tell our son, Ammon, I said, Ammon, I can't do it. He goes, oh, no, Dad, this is perfect for you. You get to be this. You get to be here at school. You can even come in my class. No, I'm a felon. Do you know what that means? He goes, no. Well, you know I was in prison. He goes, yeah, you've always told us that. He goes, well, they won't let me. They they don't want someone who's been in prison to work here in the elementary school. And I, we just have to accept it. And he had this horrible look in his eye, but we got through it okay. And I got to help coach his baseball team again that, that next spring and summer. 
Then the next year, beginning of fourth grade, same thing. He comes home all excited. Hey, watchdog dad assembly, this is your year, dad. I go, go get the application. He brings it home. It's the same application. And I said, Ammon. He asked me four times. And you know how it makes a dad feel when you tell him you can't do something mm. that that's a good thing that he really wants. And a couple of days later, I was driving along and I get a phone call. And so this is the principal for your son. She goes, your son was in my office this morning and asked if you could be a watchdog dad. And I said, sure. It's, it's not too late. The training's next week. Fill out the application. Bring it back with the $20. And he says, you don't understand. My dad's been in prison before, but he's not that man anymore. And there was a little pause. And then she says, I've done my own background check. And you are the kind of dad we want in this school. You are approved. Now you still owe me the 20 bucks, <laughs> which made me laugh and it broke the tears. And I got to go in for the training. And I got to volunteer in school for five or six days a year for the next th three years, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And you're there all day long, opening bell to closing bell. And... By sixth grade, my son didn't want me in the classroom quite as much, but I got to be in all the classrooms. And I was the first kid picked on, on the playground in basketball because when you're 5'9 and they're all 4'2", you feel like you're Shaq out there. <laughs> and uh, I had so much fun there, and it was so rewarding, but this is where God spoke to me. I was... I love being with the kindergartners and the first graders. Those little pure spirits get their love all over you. Now, they may have the attention span of a gnat or a fruit fly, um, but they are good, good children. And I got to read with this whole classroom one day out in the hallway one by one. And this one little boy, Johnny, he had worked so hard and he did really well and his reader, and I said, Johnny, you did so good. And he turned around and smiled, and he ran back from the door, and he hugged me around the knees because he's only three foot nothing. And he looked at me in the, up in the eyes, and he says, I love you, Mr. Minor. And then I heard God say, you know those labels you've hung on yourself for all these years, ex-convict, alcoholic addict, even if in recovery, less than, not good enough. And I said, yes, Lord. He said, you might want to try these on. You are a dad now. You're a husband. You're a coach. You're a citizen. You're a businessman. You're a missionary. And you are mine. Hmm. And I felt the Spirit wash over me in such a way that I've never forgotten it. It was almost as if God was putting a Teflon coat on my soul that doesn't allow shame and toxic guilt to reattach quite so readily. And uh, I'll close up with this one. Um, in middle of July in 2020, COVID had been raging, and our family was just done. And he said, we got to go somewhere. And we went down to Bryce Canyon. It's a national park here in southern Utah. And there's something special about that place. Ammon had never been. My wife and I had been, you know, 15, 20 years before, before Ammon was even born. And... I remember we walked up through the trees and the wind was blowing through the trees and it was almost as if I could feel a symphony and all of a sudden the vista opens up yeah. and you can see that wonderful vista and you can almost feel that God is painting a masterpiece while singing a symphony and he's creating it all for you. It's just this marvelous ethereal experience that, and I just remember breathing that in and going, wow, wow. So the next morning, at six in the morning, we decide to do the hike. You know, we don't want to do it in the heat of the day. So we go down what they call the Wall Street side, and they call it Wall Street because there's these really tall towers, the hoodoos, and it's it's steep, but it's a whole bunch of switch switchbacks, so it's easy to do. 
And we passed this family. It was an extended family, 20, maybe 30 people. We knew it was an extended family because they would always talk back and forth and say, hey, wait for grandma and stuff like this. And I got around a corner and I found myself alone. And there was a couple there with this beautiful little girl, about three. And this little beautiful girl picks up a rock and throws it over the edge. And quickly the dad says, Claire, don't throw rocks, sweetie. Um, They can go a long way and they can hurt someone. And she looks up to her dad with these shining, beautiful eyes and says, oh, daddy, I never want to hurt anyone. And I was transfixed. And I, I said, that girl is worthy of all love and acceptance and protection and joy. And in that quiet and stillness, I heard God speak to my soul. And now do you know how I feel about you? Hmm. And God has removed the shame of the past. And all I have breathing through me now is life and love and joy, which I want to share with everyone that I can contact. Now, that doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy and the skyrocket to heaven and on a bed of roses. Crud, I mean, we get a tax bill and we go, we weren't budgeting for that. Mm. Life continues to be life. But the bigger story is that God continues to be God. And he never forces his agency. He never forces us through our agency. He simply stands at the door and knocks again and again. And he's relentless in his pursuit of his children because he loves every one of us. Whatever we may have done or not done, he wants to us to get to know him and to know his love and to find our purpose on this earth. Amen. Mark Miner my friend, my brother, and uh, sort of one of my spiritual heroes. Thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. Thanks to Daniel Phillips for help with sound design. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InGoodFaithPod and our Facebook page, InGoodFaithPodcast. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.